You know, I've heard some interesting things that there's a connection between natural disasters and America standing against Israel. But what about the hurricane now when America's standing with Israel? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, thanks for joining us, friends, on this Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. I've also got a special guest joining me in studio I'll introduce in a moment. If you have any Jewish-related question of any kind whatsoever related to the modern state of Israel, related to Judaism or Jewish tradition or the Hebrew Bible, if it's Jewish-related, you can call today with your question, 866-348-7884, 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. So I got to thinking about something. And by the way, for those wondering about weather and hurricane, I I am going to talk about hurricanes in a moment from a theological perspective. But right where we are, a little bit north of Charlotte, North Carolina, weather is fine. As of today, I'm scheduled to fly out tonight. We bumped the flight back a day to to get out earlier. A little, little bit of wind you can just feel a bit. But uh, we shall see what happens. They're predicting in our area heavy rains, potential flooding, uh, tr- maybe tropical force winds. But it's the people on the coast that could really get devastated. So all I know how to do at times like this is pray for mercy in the midst of these massive storms coming and for God's intervention. But that, that leads me to an Israel-related subject. I've got on my desk right here a, a book. How many pages is it? Oh, let's see. It's... It's well over 500 pages by William Koenig, Eye to Eye, Facing the Consequences of Dividing Israel. Now, Bill's been a guest on my show today. I just did not have the opportunity to connect with him to ask him to come on this week. But he has documented for many years. He's a White House correspondent. He's a respected journalist. He has documented for many years when America would do something very wrong in terms of turning against Israel or betraying Israel, that there would be some type of consequent natural disaster in America. And some are very skeptical about that, wonder if there's any truth to that. Others say, yeah, that makes sense. That's the way God works. And you bless Israel, you get blessed, you curse Israel, you curse. And what what I always said about it was some things really got my attention. They seemed to strike me as really fascinating parallels and Wow. And, and again, I've, I've got the book here and the you know, documentation is, is pretty, pretty detailed, point after point after point after point. Uh, but I said the only way I could fully evaluate that is I'd have to look at the major natural disasters we've had at the least since the forming of the modern state of Israel. So going back to 1947, 48, perhaps even before then and see, OK, did we have this major natural disaster, this major hurricane, this major event? And it has no connection to anything going on in Israel at all, or are they largely connected? So what, what got me thinking about this now, and I'm, I'm not taking either side. I'm not making an argument either way. What got me thinking about this is President Trump has stood with the Israel in ways more than Barack Obama did, more than George W. Bush, more than Bill Clinton, more than George H.W. Bush, in, in very, very strong ways. 
relocating the embassy to Jerusalem, giving ultimatums to the Palestinian Authority, even say, okay, we're, sh- we're shutting down the embassy because in D.C. because they're not interested in the peace process. I mean, this is pretty strong stuff. And, and yet you could say that pres- the president's polling is down now and taking a hit before the midterm elections. Is God blessing him for his stance? Or the larger question of what about Israel as a whole and, 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 and America as a whole? Let's look at it. If there's a massive hurricane coming, one perhaps one of the most devastating that we've had potentially, uh, why does that happen after we've stood with Israel? Shouldn't that stop the hurricane from coming? And others would say, well, that proves there's no connection whatsoever. Anyway, I, I just wanted to put it out for discussion. When I have a, the opportunity, I'll interact with Bill Koenig about that. All right. So I just wanted to throw that out. Interestingly, I've got a poll going on Twitter. Do you believe that God still blesses those who bless Israel? So we have the first, what, 346 votes in. 75% said absolutely. 8% maybe. And 17% not modern Israel. So, yeah, I, I could have potentially given a fourth category, a fourth choice, but, but those covered the main questions I wanted to ask. So there's some who say, yes, God does bless those who bless Israel, but it has nothing to do with the modern state of Israel today, and you can't make that connection, or Israel is the church, or whatever. But it's interesting that only 17% said that, and only 8% said maybe. So 75% said absolutely. Very interesting, for sure. 866-348-7884. Your Jewish-related questions are welcome. Okay, and we'll come back to the subject more. We'll discuss it a little bit more. But had the opportunity, and we just set this up literally minutes before the show. Sean Steckbeck is one of our ministry school grads that has served in Israel for years, married to an Israeli, and just moved to the States temporarily, but they, they live in Israel Uh, Sean got so invested in the country there that he studied to become a a tour guide. We'll find out exactly what what that requires. And then he's been powerfully used by the Lord in a a house church planting movement, reaching Arabs, Muslims, Druze, Jews, and then going into countries like Myanmar and others, so reaching Buddhists and other people in, in Asia and we brought him in to teach our students at Fire School of Ministry these principles of house churches, planting churches, reaching the lost effectively. And uh, when I realized Sean was going to be here during the, uh, during the program, we said, well, let's bring him on. So, Sean, great to have you with us. We need you right up close on, on the mic there. All right, so great to have you with us, Sean. Thank you, Alex. It's an honor to be here. All right, so, Sean, just first, how did you end up in Israel, after graduating from ministry school, having a heart for, for the Lord, how'd you end up in Israel? Well, it's actually quite a wild story, but there was a lady, um, an older lady, that when I was in Brownsville at the School of Ministry there, that I never met before. She was on a 40-day fast. She walked up to me and she said, I don't know you. I was on a 40-day fast. I was called to go into this restaurant and I'd meet a young man in here called to Israel. You're that young man. She invited me over to her house and... I met a beautiful young Israeli lady that was visiting her, and that lady later became my wife. Well, okay. So, now, we all know that there's a, there's a lot of flakiness, 
and weird things and weird people. But when something like that happens, you end up having effective ministry and you end up meeting your wife. Wow, that's that's extraordinary. Yes. Uh, and and what was your your current wife? What was she doing there at that time? Well, she had come. She had been discipled by a lady named Ruth Ward Heflin in Israel. And she had come to Virginia to go to Ruth's funeral when Ruth passed away. And someone invited her to come to visit the revival in Brownsville, the same lady who had prophesied over me and met me when I was serving the restaurant. So she came to visit her down in Pensacola, visited the revival. And that's what she was doing down there, visiting the revival. And, and how did then God give you a heart for Israel? Well, um, it was quite supernatural. It's interesting because I always thought I was called to Southeast Asia. I never thought I was called to Israel. I thought people, then I thought that people were called to Israel were kind of flaky. Mm-hmm. And um, I always said, I'm not called to Israel. I'm called to Southeast Asia. I'm going to reach the Buddhist world. And whenever that lady prayed for me, there was a download about Israel. I could say that started studying Romans 9 through 11, started seeing God's promises and heart for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel. And it just completely changed me. Mm. And what about becoming a tour guide? What what did you have to do to become a tour guide? Because when when I'm out on the tours, I'm amazed at how much information they have. So, so tell me about training to be a tour guide. Well, the training to be a licensed Israeli guide is actually a very intense training because Israel does not want people to represent them that are just only in half knowledge. As a matter of fact, if you guide without a license, it could be up to like a $1,000 fine mm. given by the Ministry of Tourism. It's a two-year school. And it's a very intense school. You go out every week studying archaeology, um, astronomy, you know, basically every subject under the sun. And then the testing is very intense. It's under Haifa University. Um, so it's an accredited uh, courses by Haifa University on a, uh, you know, on an academic level. So how, how long is the course? It's a two-year course. Two-year course. And you're out on the field as well as in classrooms? Yes, you're learning out on the field, and you're learning intensively inside of a class as well. And, like, how many hours a day? Um, you, you, let's see, you're, uh, about 16 hours a week in class study, and then about 10 hours a week in field study. Got it. And, and how many, did, did a number of people start that didn't finish? Oh, about more than half of the people who usually start it. Uh, don't finish through the midterms. And then there's more that don't even finish through the testing because the testing is very intense, very hard. Um, only about half the people who take the test actually pass it. And and uh, I didn't even plan on doing this, but since I've, I've got a, my next tour in February, what you, you've led lots of tours. How are people impacted when they, when they go to Israel? Um, oh, there's so many, on so many different levels. I would say a tour, I would even tell people sometimes, you can buy, go a seminary and study in Israel because there, it just the Bible becomes alive. Suddenly the culture becomes alive. The geography comes alive. And there's just something that, that when the Bible becomes in 3D and you begin to see the cultural context, the geographical context of the scriptures, and you, I would say more than anything, there's walking in the footsteps of Jesus. But I think that even people get a revelation about the Jewish people and the the Old Testament because I find a lot of Christians don't really have that much Old Testament about the kings, about the the judges, about the chronicles. They really don't have that much knowledge there. And when you're standing on a site and you're explaining the stories at the site, suddenly those stories come alive, stories that many are not even familiar with. Mm. 
Yeah, and it is like going from some, say, black and white to, to now everything is in color or even 3D. Well, uh, might as well then put in the plug. Uh, we are going to be closing out the tour very shortly. We're, we're extending registration a few more weeks. Uh, in fact, I thought we were closing it out as of a few days ago, but it's going to be extended a few more weeks. If you want to go, now's the time to sign up February 1st through 10th. We're calling it Holy Fire in the Holy Land because it's not just the tour by day, but special meetings by night as well. So go to my website, AskDrBrown, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. All right. And right on the homepage, you can register, get your deposit in now. The sooner, the better. All right. Whole lot to talk about when we come back. In fact, they're going to give away a free book or two. Stay tuned. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends. Oh, okay. We didn't have our Jewish music. I was ready for it, then forgot about it, and then was ready for it. But here we are. It is, it still is, Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, even without our Jewish music. This is Michael Brown, your Thoroughly Jewish host. Delighted to be with you. If you have a Jewish-related question, 866-34-TRUTH. Before I go back to my guest, Sean Steckbeck, talk more about Israel and amazing things God is doing in the land, uh, let me give away a free book. Let me give you the background to the book. We now have, and have for some years now, a staff member whose whole job is answering Jewish-related emails that come in. Many are from Christians with Jewish-related questions. Some are from Jewish seekers. But that's what this individual does. And before that, we had team members that answered biblical theological questions that, that you would send in to us. But the Jewish-related ones, no one knew how to answer that. So they would come to me, and I thought, well, I don't have time to answer all of these. And some of them are kind of repetitive, you know, the same questions coming up a lot. So why don't I put together a book, take the most common questions that people ask, and put a book together. Well, it ended up being a lot more writing than I planned, and I, I want to be more thorough and tell more interesting stories and so on. So that became 60 questions Christians ask about Jewish beliefs and practices. And it's, it's super practical, everything from Israel and the Palestinians to well, how do we have the Jewish dietary laws to what do Jews believe about the Messiah? What about Christians and the law? What about Sabbath observance? Was the New Testament written in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek? And all those questions are in there. So uh, tell you what, I want to give away a free copy of 60 questions. Christians ask about Jewish beliefs and practices. Caller number six, caller number six, 866-348-7884, the number to call. Okay, so Sean, back to you. Uh, how is it that, that you got involved with church planting in, in Israel with house churches with reaching out in, in ways that might be a little different than some of us are used to. How did you get involved with that? Well, basically, I was a youth pastor in Tel Aviv when I first came to Israel at a Messianic congregation there. And when I was a youth pastor there, it's against the law in Israel to share the gospel with a minor in Israel. Right. 
And so I thought, how, what is the best way we can have youth basically grow our youth group? So I started training youth to share the gospel with youth, and it worked. The only problem is that we, they couldn't bring them to the congregation. Mm. So then I thought, what's the best way to disciple these youth? So I started giving the youth training skills to disciple the youth they were leading to the Lord outside the ah, congregation. So you kind of stumbled on this. I stumbled upon it. Got it. All right, friends, we, we do have a winner. Uh, we'll, we'll give away another book a little bit later, but but we do have a winner. So thank you for your call. So we'll give away another book a little bit later. All right. So you you stumbled on a on a better way to to make disciples, a, a, a way where they didn't have to be brought to a physical congregation. Did you then discover that what you had stumbled on was something that others had been already practicing? Absolutely. I started reading books like Church Planning Movements by David Garrison. Mega Shift by Jim Rutz. I started being, then I met mentors like um, Victor Chowdhury in India who started mentoring me. He's planted over well over a thousand, a million churches, sorry, a million churches in India. Mm. And he just started, he loved Israel so much. He said, I want to pour into you. Brought me to India and poured into me for a while. So, uh, and, and when, when people here planted over a million churches, do you mean that he personally? Are you, for, for those that are skeptics, are you claiming that he personally has gone door to door and literally himself planted over a million churches? How do, you, how do you come up with a figure like that? Well, Genesis 128, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and take dominion over it. It's through the power of multiplication. And the power of multiplication allows the priesthood of every believer and allows basically the gospel to expand at rabbit level and not at elephant level, where it's rapid multiplication. So explain, how does it work? Basically, you go and you find a person of peace. Um, just like Luke 10 says, you follow Luke 10 as a model. Luke 10 says you go, basically, you go and you find a person of peace. Meaning? A person of peace is somebody who, who is open to the gospel, is inviting you into their home, and feeds you. It's in their territory. It's not in your territory. You go into their home, you eat their food, just like it says Jesus told his disciples to do in Luke 10. Then you heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons in their home, and then you share the kingdom with them through basically gospel storing. You do it in a reproducible manner. In the midst of that, you're training them to do it with others in a reproducible manner, and then it just reproduces itself at a very fast level. So give me an example of what you've seen happen in Israel. So in Israel, I'll give you one example. We had a lady... Um, who had come to the Lord, a Jewish lady, a Jewish Sabra lady, uh, several years ago. And this lady was actually married to a Muslim. I know it's very rare, but it happens. And so one example is this lady. I went to immerse her after she decided to follow Yeshua. And so when I went to immerse her, she said, uh, could you please immerse my kids? And I told her, no. She said, why not? I said, I refuse to be a stumbling block to your obedience. You're also called to immerse others. And so she got out of the water wet, turned around, and immersed her kids. Well, then she said, well, we also need my husband who lives in the West Bank. So we went to the West Bank, to a Palestinian town in Hebron. We shared with him. Signs and wonders and miracles started breaking out in that town. In incredible levels, demons started being cast out. Uh, demonstration of the gospel of kingdom was made. People came from all over the village into the house. People were hanging out the windows. Um, and then after that demonstration, we just invested ourselves into a few people and then shared with them how to share Bible stories in a Muslim-friendly way to their friends. And they started sharing with others. And it created a multiplication movement with um, dozens of Muslims getting 
baptized in an area that was completely unreached and unengaged. And are they still there? Yes, they're still there. They're still multiplying, actually. And when I was when with you in May, I got to meet some of the folks that had come to faith and from different backgrounds, from religious Jewish to Muslim. So you're seeing fruit that remains. Yes, absolutely. Fruit and also mature disciples, because when you're making disciples, you yourself are maturing yourself. And one of the reasons I believe people don't mature in the Lord is because they're not immediately going out and making disciples. There's there's something that remains when people go out and make disciples themselves, and they're not just consumers in the faith. Got it. Got it. So, friends, some of what you're hearing may sound new or different, but this is how God's been moving around the world for many, many years in many, many different contexts. So the people that are touched, they get saved, they get turned around. People invest in, in the, the right ones, the, the potential leaders among them. Ongoing multiplication, multiplication. So again, one plus one plus one plus one. I'm happy to win as many people to the Lord and witness to as many people to the Lord. And I'm one, you're one, that's great. But two times two times four times eight times 16, you know, suddenly you need a calculator to figure out what's, what's going on. And, and Sean, even though we're, we're talking about Israel today on, on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, you've also gotten to go into Southeast Asia, gotten into the, into the Buddhist world. What have you seen happening there? Well, we actually bring Israelis with us, and sometimes even Palestinians and Israelis together, to these places because we believe Israel is called to be a light to the nations. Um, and we believe they're an emissary nation. But when we go there, like, I'll give you one story. And one of the stories is we went into a Buddhist town, uh, a vill- I mean, a Buddhist village up in the jungles that was completely unreached. What country? In Myanmar. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit told us to go into the Buddhist temple, to go into their territory, into the heart of the territory of the enemy. So we went into a Buddhist temple. We sat down with the Buddhist monk. He fed us. Afterwards, he said, what do you need? We said, can we pray for the sake of your village? He said, no. He said, invite them. I'm going to invite them into the Buddhist temple. So he invited the entire village, 200 people, into the Buddhist temple. I said, pinch me. I can't believe I'm dreaming here. Mm. We're about to do a healing meeting inside of a Buddhist temple with a Buddhist monk introducing us. Mm. And so he introduced us. We, we started telling the story about how the future, the future one to come is, go, uh, is healed the woman with the issue of blood. And after that, we felt the ground start to shake. And I said, what was that? And the Holy Spirit spoke to me that there's going to be an earthquake within one week. Which did happen. Which did happen. Yeah. And um, afterwards, we prayed for sick. Blind eyes were open. Deaf ears were open. Um, many of the Israelis that were with me in that temple was the first time they ever saw healings. Mm. And so they came back to Israel on fire. And from that experience, let's just say uh, we baptized seven people afterwards in the Buddhist temple. And it's multiplied to hundreds of people in that people group who have now come to faith. So, friends, if, if this sounds outlandish, impossible, just ask yourself, number one, is this what we should expect if Jesus is risen from the dead and the Holy Spirit is moving? Is this not consistent with the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh? Is this not consistent with the way God expanded his kingdom in the first century? And when you hear, you know, phenomenal church growth in Asia, phenomenal church growth taking taking place in China, in Latin America, in India, in Iran, a lot of it is just like this. It, and, and a lot of it, there's no other choice. 
In fact, I've, I've got to write shortly on, on increasing persecution within mainland China, communist China. Uh, some of our pre- precious friends who've been there for many years sent me a very, very detailed, disturbing report. But there's not even the ability in many of these settings to have, quote, normal church services in normal settings. So God's not limited by the walls of a building. And listen, I have friends who are involved in the house church movement around the world, and I have friends who are mega church pastors around the world, and I see God moving in amazing ways in all of them. The key thing is, are we being disciples and are we making disciples? That's the real question. Good news is the gospel works anywhere, in Israel, in the Middle East, in America. 866-348-7884. Your Jewish-related questions and calls will take some on the other side of the break. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the broadcast. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Again, a storm update. Been getting texts, people saying you're safe there in North Carolina. Where, Where we are is further inland. And what is expected is heavy rain, perhaps flooding, perhaps tropical force winds. The areas that could really be devastated are on the coast. And that is just starting to hit now. So, you know, you always hope that the storm dissipates. You always hope that the worst expectations don't come to to pass. But the, the power of these is overwhelming. And, you know, you could say, well, I think storms just happen. That's part of a fallen world, or no storms are God's judgment, no storms are the devil attacking, no s- storms, that's the result of global warming. You, know, you come up with whatever explanation you want. Bottom line, bottom line is that God is the king over all the storms and God is the king over all the universe. Therefore, we pray to the king, God have mercy in the midst of the storm and dissipate it. May people be protected. A lot, it could bring a lot of suffering, a lot of upheaval to many, as you know. So we pray for mercy in the midst of the storm. If you have a Jewish-related question for me, 866-34-TRUTH. I'm joined in studio with one of our ministry school grads, Sean Steckbeck, who's been involved in a wonderful house church planting movement in Israel, in middle, uh, in um, uh, Southeast Asia, and is in the States now uh, doing some ministry and just went out with our students uh, in our ministry school and, and Sean, be, before I go to some calls and take up some Jewish-related questions, what happened with uh, a number of students went out uh, after you taught and gave instruction about how to reach out and how to open doors and things like that? So what, what's come out of that? Well, um, we did an assessment report afterwards. We basically... And you were, you were ministering, maybe we had like 30, 40 people, something that you were ministering to, something like that. Yes. Uh-huh. So from the 35 people, there were seven teams that were formed that went out door-to-door in a community here in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Um, from those, about seven people said no, they don't want. About nine people wanted prayer. And six people 
opened up their doors and requested a Bible study in their home, but expressed no interest in coming to church. And they had made plans for us to come back and start the students, the fire students to go back and start a Bible study in their home. And they were just shocked at how easy that was. Amazing. And then you've done this now over the years. Obviously, you pray, you fast, you minister, you, you do your best to reach out with sensitivity. It's it's the Holy Spirit who gives the increase. But if you have six or seven that say, we want you to come back and do a Bible study, what do you expect? Do you expect half of those to, to long-term stay there and, and end up becoming a, a church planted in someone's house? Absolutely. Like the parable of the seed and the sower, it falls, you throw everywhere, you filter the ground. And in the parable of seed and sower, about a quarter stay. You know, a quarter is good ground, but that good ground multiplies 30, 60, and 100 fold. And so that's what we're looking for is not only long-term fruit, it may only be one or two, but they'll also multiply. And that's where you invest. Got it. All right. Just wanted to share that with you. Real life on the streets of North Carolina, not Myanmar, not Israel, not Palestinian territories, right where we live in America. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to the phones and we'll start in Tennessee with Farah. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi. Hello. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead, please. Um, yes, I was wondering about the red heifer. Have you do you know anything about it? Yeah, sure sure thing. So here's here's the potential significance or not. We know from Numbers the nineteenth chapter that there was the ashes of purification. If anyone was ritually unclean for any reason, they would have to wash using water with these ashes of purification. And the ashes came from an unblemished red heifer. So with the destruction of the first temple and then the second temple, and then no access to these ashes, in terms of Jewish thinking, the whole world would then be in a state of ritual impurity. We're not talking about sin like murder or adultery, but ritual impurity, like touching a dead body or something like that. So uh, as there are many in Israel that want to see, uh, I should say there's a small remnant within Israel that thinks that they can actually work towards seeing a third temple built. Your average religious Jew is believing that the Messiah, this would be one of the things the Messiah does, and we know he's the Messiah because he builds the third temple. But there are others saying, yes, well, we do our part. We are in preparation for the building of the third temple. And that's part of the, the Messianic movement. So they have a school in Jerusalem. They have, they have made priestly garments and various other uh, objects, vessels for, for a third temple. They have been training those who are priests and Levites for functioning with animal sacrifice and things like that. And one of the key things is, okay, they're going to need an unblemished red heifer. So some of these rabbis involved have tried through whatever way they can, with embryos, whatever, to, to try to, to produce a red heifer. And the ones that have been produced have been blemish here, problem there. So they found one now that they say is unblemished, and they're going to watch carefully because a blemish could develop. And if the assumption would be that if this red heifer makes it into adulthood, Without a blemish, then that's a candidate to be killed and its ashes used for, for purification waters in conjunction with the temple. Now, I never look for these things. I don't follow them as signs. I just think the whole thing is interesting that people are even talking about it. 
but I, I'm not looking at it. This is a significant sign. This means that something's about to happen. I just think it's very interesting that we're even in a day and age where our people are back in the land with autonomy, where there is even talk about a third temple. So to me, it's of interest in, a, in, a, in that way and nothing beyond that. So Farah, thank you for the question. Uh, Sean, having lived in Israel for years, married to an Israeli a licensed tour guide there, so knowing the land, knowing the culture. Would you say that your average Israeli, your average secular Israeli, is thinking a lot about a third temple? Uh, absolutely not. I've never heard it much. Maybe traditional, more traditional ones are, and religious ones, but even the religious Jewish people, there's sects that don't even want to talk about the rebuilding of the temple. They're very... Um, happy with the way things are now. And then there's other sects that really want the rebuilding of the temple and yearn for that. Yeah, so your your average evangelical Christian who who loves Israel and supports Israel thinks about the third temple a lot more than the vast majority of Israelis. Certainly secular Israelis, it's not on their mind at all. And the religious Jews, the majority are looking for the Messiah to do this. But there is this remnant that's, that's looking for this to happen. A question on YouTube from Daniel, what does living water mean in Leviticus 14? Just, just means, it, it just means a, a stream of water, uh, living in the sense of, of running water as opposed to a, a well of water. Mayim uh, Chaim, that's what it means. Now, what's interesting is that it could also have a spiritual application, which is why in John, the fourth chapter with a Samaritan woman, uh, when Jesus is talking about giving her living water, she doesn't get it. because like, well, this is a well. What are you talking about? Living water, meaning running like a stream that's living water. It's moving, it's coming and going. It has life sources and things like that. A well, just water, just, it's just stagnating there, all right? Or just, just, just a, a little body of water with nothing coming in and going out. Just when it rains, that's it. That's, that's stagnating. So she's trying to figure, what, what do you mean living water? She doesn't get the spiritual application because she's thinking in the natural, but the words would, would work in the natural. Sean, uh, as you studied the scriptures, and then as a tour guide, uh, give us an example of something that we might have missed, just like the, quote, living water thing. Why was the woman so confused in John 4? He's talking about living water, and she's thinking about a physical well, because they're talking about could be physical water. Give me an example of something that you discovered in your studies, maybe at Haifa University when studying to be a tour guide, that you didn't know before that opened up a passage of scripture to you. Something that opened up a passage of scripture to me. Okay, so from the Hebrew or from archaeology? Either way, either, either way. way. Okay, so basically, uh, could we come back to that? Sure thing. All right, give, yeah, give it thought because obviously, uh, let's think archaeologically, all right? Something archaeologically that happened that as you studied it, it came alive because you talk about on the, you know, going out on a tour and seeing things face to face, what happens. So you may have a few examples. We'll, we'll come up with one, but we'll grab a call in the meantime. Go over to Michigan. Jake, welcome to the line of fire. Thanks for calling. Hey, thanks, Dr. Brown. And I just want to say uh, hey to Sean. And I appreciate that testimony. That's an awesome testimony of uh, church, uh, church being built all over the world. And my question goes to, um, you know, that church model that you described, Sean, um, how come I don't? It's not very prevalent in America, and is the American church culture system kind of dampening um, what the Holy Spirit wants to do? Well, we need 
grace and patience because we're all following the Lord where we're at and for the best ability we know and the obedience that he's given to us. Um, For me, I see the scriptures as Yeshua said, um, you go and make disciples. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And sometimes I think we confuse what is Yeshua's job and what is our job. Yeshua's job is to build his church. Our job is to go and make disciples. And things w- I think things would look a lot uh, more reproducible, healthy, effective, if we were to distinguish those two roles, whose job it is to make disciples and whose job it is to build his church. And, and Jake, think yeah, yeah. Let, me ju- let me just mention one thing. I acknowledge the Lord working in many different settings in many different formats. I know some churches that that meet in the building on a Sunday morning and they are tremendously effective in outreach and discipleship and they have a, they have a network of, of of dozens or hundreds of cell groups where people are really being discipled and growing and reaching their neighborhoods. And I know others where it's just a matter of showing up at a building on a Sunday morning and going to church becomes the expression of everything. And then I know some folks that meet in the house on Thursday night, so they won't be religious, and all they do is sit around and judge everybody else. So the, the, there can be lots of good and bad in each different setting. And, but I think you'd be surprised, Jake, to find out how many house church movements there are in America. Gotcha. And, and just a uh, quick follow-up. It seems like in, like in, in different church, churches I've been to that there's always like a—I don't know if it's a confusion of what discipleship is— but it's like, hey, come to this class and and learn to get your finances in order, and that's what we consider discipleship. Yeah, well, let, let's just say this: we we often don't have the best model for discipleship, and perhaps because of that, it's harder to reproduce. But discipleship does touch on every area of life. Some churches will say, "Hey, we got to get our finances in order." That's just part. It's it's part of it. So this whole thing has to be lived out holistically, and it's always a challenge to do it in a contemporary culture like this. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends, on the Line of Fire. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Hey, do you know about my Wednesday night show called Real Messiah? It airs in New York City, but we do a live stream on Facebook and YouTube, just like with our daily show. And we really dig in deep into the Hebrew. We get into the weekly Torah portion. We give Messianic insights. Sometimes we'll, we'll take calls from counter-missionaries or others who differ with us. Uh, it's a great resource. It, it's really one where we get in depth. We have less commercial breaks, even less than we have now during the day. So if you haven't watched any of the shows, I really encourage you to. If you like Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, you'll love The Real Messiah broadcast on Wednesday nights. You'll find it on the AskDrBrown.org website or on the YouTube website as well, or on our Facebook page, Ask Dr. Brown on Facebook or YouTube. All right, let me give away... Another copy of my book, 60 Questions Christians Ask About Jewish Beliefs and Practices. I ended up putting a lot more into the book than I planned, and a lot more illustrations and stories and 
so many questions that that people wonder about. And you know, what about Christians in the feasts and holy days? Or, or what about Jewish background to the New Testament? Or what about, or is it true that Palestinians are descendants of the ancient Canaanites, or is that some kind of myth? And and on and on it goes with questions that we have. What do Jews believe about the Messiah? The different denominations in Judaism, and on and on. So, a uh, caller number seven, caller number seven, eight six six three four eight seven eight eight four. Caller number seven, you get a free copy of sixty questions. Christians ask about Jewish beliefs and practices. One of the most practical books that I've written. All right, Sean. So an example, archaeological, historical example of something that really came alive when you got the back, you'd read the scriptures for years and then you learned the cultural or archaeological background. It really came alive for you. Go ahead. Well, I know that the geography of the land, it speaks one of the examples, and you begin to, when you begin to understand as well Jewish context and the Jewish way of thinking, which is more circular rather than linear, like we think from A to Z, Jewish people think from A to A. And when you begin to understand how the Jewish people read scriptures, which is part of our training, you begin to see the geography, you begin to see how there's actually a cycle with the geography in the land. For example, um, Jonah, when he rejected God's calling to go to the Gentiles, it was he left from Jaffa. And Peter, when he received the vision to go to Cornelius, he received that vision on a housetop in Jaffa. Mm. So it came full circle, mm-hmm. which is completely Jewish thought. Another example, whenever, uh, whenever the, uh, David, it, it says in, in the scriptures that David's soul hated the lame and the blind. And that, that's, of course, where Joab Ben Zoria went up the water shaft to conquer the city of Jerusalem from. He conquered it from the water shaft where the lame and the blind would have been, you know, begging for, for basically money, right? And so that happened with King David. He conquered the city from Jerusalem through the lame and the blind at the water source. Yeshua only did two miracles in Jerusalem, both of them at the water source, the pool of, uh, the pool of Siloam, one, and the other one, the pool of Bethesda. The house of mercy, right? Bethesda in Hebrew. So what were they? The pool of Siloam, the blind man. The other one, the pool of Bethesda, a lame man. So just like, just like, uh, um, just like David conquered the city through the lame and the blind at a water source. So Jesus, the only two miracles outside of the resurrection that is recorded that he did inside Jerusalem was healed the lame man and the blind man. It came full circle. And just yeah, to interrupt, we, we've had a winner for a while. So sorry if you're, you're calling in. Uh, you can hold off on the calls, but but thanks. By the way, you can always buy these books. They're they're great books to read. And I guess you would, when you speak of miracles in Jerusalem, specifically recorded, because we know that when Jesus is at the temple, that that it, it, it does speak of blind and lame coming and, and healings and miracles taking place. But obviously, there are a couple of specific ones recorded that that you referenced. Uh, so, it, what what's really interesting, it really is interesting, is. Obviously, you can read the Bible, you can read it in English, and God speaks. You know, so I've spent many years studying the original languages and all this, but still, I can read the Bible in English, and it speaks, and, and my life is impacted, my life has changed. But like anything else, you keep learning, you keep digging, you keep learning, you keep digging, and, and things come alive that, that you hadn't seen before. Now, uh, just switching subjects slightly, Sean, as we talked about house churches reaching out to Muslims, reaching out to Buddhists, reaching out to secular Israelis. How in the world 
you reach out to a religious Jew. You don't look like a religious Jew, so you're, you're something wrong already. You're obviously not observing the Torah. There's something wrong. Why should they listen to you? And if you use standard terminology, that's going to create, turn. you know, people are going to turn against what you're saying. So how do you reach religious Jews? Is, is that something that, that you've had to just leave to others or an area where you've even seen some grace in, in reaching out and, and winning the lost among the religious Jews? Well, we've actually seen doors open with religious Jews as we're looking for gospel bridges that are effective. They may be a little bit out of the box, but we found some effective gospel bridges um, with the people we're working with. And we're now seeing a wave of religious Jewish people coming to faith. Give me an example. Um, so one day I came to a house of a religious Jewish man. He invited us in, went together with a teammate, Oded, you know Oded. Yeah. And so we went in the house. They invited us in. We started telling stories about Yeshua. If you try to share with a Jewish person, you know, to lead them to faith or he feels like, but if you share him stories about Yeshua, he can fall in love with Yeshua without actually, you know, trying to convince him about his Messiah. So we told a story about him. He said, that's very interesting. And we said, could we pray for you? Now, now did, you, did you tell him this is the Jesus Christ that the church follows or this famous ancient rabbi that he didn't know about? No, I use the term Rabban Yoshua bin Yosef HaTzadik. Okay which means Rabbi Yeshua, the son of Joseph, the righteous. And the word Hatzadik is a very popular term yeah, yeah. in their terminology. And the big gospel bridge that we found there is when we were sharing with him, he's like, no, you can't pray to me in the name of Yeshua. I like Yeshua from the story you just told me. So, so he, he was welcoming prayer, but he would not allow you to pray for him in Yeshua's name. Exactly. And so he wanted explanation. Like we, we, he wanted explanation. Why are you praying to a man? Why do you need a mediator? In, in the gospel bridge, God gave us to that question because signs and wonders can break through where even logic can't. And so the way that opened the door to be able to do signs and wonders was using the idea. There's a Hebrew idea called merit, a schuyot. And they actually go to rabbis' graves to get schuyot. They believe that these rabbis have merit and that they're able to vicariously receive from the merit of these rabbis. So we use this terminology to say, do you believe Rabbi Joseph, uh, Yeshua, son of Joseph, is he a righteous man that has merit? Yes. So just like you go to the, you know, to um, Baba Sally. Right. Famous miracle working Orthodox rabbi and people would go to his grave thinking that they could get some of his merit for a miracle. Exactly. Why can't you go to our rabbi who also has merit and who lived a sinless life? And he said, OK, he let us pray for him while we're praying for him. He felt the power of God. His son let us pray for him. His son actually fell out on the spirit in the couch. The son, an Orthodox, an Orthodox Jewish son with a kippah fell out on the spirit in the couch, got completely healed of his asthma, and they invited us to come back. Really? Yes. Yeah, so the, the same Jesus, the same Yeshua, risen from the dead, obviously, once the person begins to open their heart and mind, then you explain the, the fullness of the gospel message, but sometimes it's a matter of, of opening a door just as Paul did in Acts, the 17th chapter, and trying to find a point where he could then reach them with the message of the Messiah. And uh, do you then try to pull that person, Sean, out of their community? Is, is that the goal and get them out of their wrong traditions and get them into a good, healthy church somewhere? Or is that a wrong way of thinking? I completely think that's a wrong way of thinking, in my view. In my view, you leave them in the community to be, one, to be salt and light, and two, to be an expression of the kingdom within their community. All right, so 
then what you want to do is form a congregation of believers right there. Obviously, we need one another. We need to be part of a group of believers and then with godly leaders discipling. But when I talked about getting to a church, I was I used the word church intentionally as if the thing is, you know, get them, stop being a Jew and now become a Gentile Christian. No, that's not the goal. And and that he may get kicked out of his neighborhood once other people find out what he believes. But if he can stay there and, and reach others and reproduce, who better to reach other religious Jews, to reach family members and friends than a religious Jew? So, uh, Sean, a lot of the vision that you have is is just simply doing the work indigenously. Absolutely. They can reach their own people better than I can. So I know my limitations in that community. So if I can find a key person who can do it better than I can, then my job is just to invest them to do their work within their own community. All right, friends, you may have heard some things that challenge some of your thinking, but again, look at Scripture. We're not talking about departing from the church. We're talking about many different expressions of the body some of them in big buildings, some of them in caves, some of them in houses. But the goal is that we as disciples make disciples, and it's those who believe that God works through. So yes, we have pastors and leaders and teachers, and we have others that that train and equip, but the work of the ministry is done by us. Isn't that what's written in Ephesians, the fourth chapter? Whatever you believe about apostles, prophets being for today and not for today— Whatever you leave about it, if you just say, well, we have pastors, teachers, evangelists, well, not even going to debate that. The thing is, though, that they are there to train you to do the work of the ministry. And the great majority of people that are going to come to faith in this next year in America or any country are going to be those who heard the gospel through a friend or family member. So let's take this to heart and say, God, use me to be a disciple, to make disciples. 